Hello and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. All right, welcome everybody. Dr. Weatherby here from OptimalDX. I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Brad Rackman. Dr. Rackman is the medical director of the Rackman Clinic, a tertiary care facility in Asheville, North Carolina area, specializing in the diagnosis and management of individuals with chronic and or perplexing health issues. He's formerly served as the director of the Department of Medical Science and vice president of research and development for Genova Diagnostics. And during that tenure, he led the team that developed the first genomic panels that delivered genomic results and epigenetic interpretation to Genova's physician clients. He's an alumnus of the University of Michigan School of Biomedical Engineering, completed his chiropractic studies at Palmer University in Davenport, Iowa. He has served as an educational consultant for the Institute of Functional Medicine and has lectured at hundreds of medical education events throughout the world, sharing his enthusiasm and knowledge of advanced laboratory diagnostics and functional medicine interventions. But his favorite roles and achievements are being a husband and father to four lovely daughters. Dr. Rackman, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. In that brief introduction, we talked you know, a little bit about the type of practice you have. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more of some of the cases that you typically see and that sort of thing. I have a wastebasket practice, which <laughs> I would consider the people that walk, I used to say through my door, we haven't done that in a long time. But the patients that I work with, Dr. Weatherby, are those that don't get better and they don't die. They're really pretty much at the end of their rope. I'm a tertiary care provider. I rarely see people in the front end, end of an illness. I rarely see people who need to see a specialist. It's after that. They're usually in the midst of getting some sort of consultation, usually at a more traditional tertiary center like you know Mayo or Cleveland. But they're reaching out to somebody who might have a diagnostic skill set and a treatment skill set that catches, you know, the outliers, as Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm you know, Gladwell, so well so, put, yeah. you know, medicine for the most part really vaporizes the outliers because it's not neat and it's not pretty and it takes thinking outside of a tight, easy algorithm. Mm. So that's my sweet spot. Like we all have our gifts and I don't think I'm that great at primary care, but I'm really good at medical problem solving. That's fantastic. So I enjoy the process. It's difficult, you know, because these mm -hmm. patients, I've lost their hope, you know, and it's the first thing we need to reestablish with them. That's a very interesting definition, a problem, a medical problem solver. So given that, obviously, you must use a wide array of assessment and diagnostic tools. Maybe could you talk a little bit about kind of your process for taking someone through the diagnostic journey? Because I have such a small practice, my census is about 200 people at a time that I'm looking after when the average practice is somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 people that they're looking after. And I make sure that the right person for the people that are joining me. So I spend some time in consultation without charge for people to figure out if they're in the right place. And if right. the issue elevates to the level of complexity, you know, and is also in my wheelhouse of what I can treat well. And if so, we go through a couple stage diagnostic process, really forcing 
couple big consultations. I'm not only doing an excellent case history, but my first consultation is basically asking enough information and trying to be curious enough about their condition without judgment, without preconceived notions that I can ask certain questions that nobody's ever asked before, that we can be interested in their physiology yeah. about certain areas that nobody else has ventured into. People's skin conditions, I'm asking about their bowel, and nobody's ever done that before. Yeah. And from that, I come up with a working list that we used to call it a differential diagnosis. But for me, it's like, it's my best guess. It's like, based on what I know, what do I want to know? And what do I think is going on now? After doing this now for 30 years, and that's hard to say that word, I've gotten good at it. You know, so, yeah. you know, it doesn't take but an hour. And I'm like, wow, I think we're in this realm of one, two, five things, and probably all, maybe some. Most of the time I hit it dead on where the exact cluster I'm thinking of is exactly what's going on. Rarely is it outside that realm. And we'll order diagnostic testing in the area of immunology, gut testing, the nuts and bolts of functional medicine, and also on the edges, advanced antibody testing, some challenge testing, and some of the in-office tests that you taught me about, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago, very, very valuable. We'll touch on one or two of them today. But the combination I put together, I come up with a cause and effect map for every patient, like literally a physical map that they can see where the initial causes are, one or more, and then how it spills out through their physiology, which gives them, I mean, some of them just start crying, you know, when they see that. Because so for the first time, someone has identified positives, which I will tell you that a lot of people have been told there's nothing wrong with them. Right. To see something, you know, as a, as a medical positive is validating. And, you know, I then take that into a very classic Japanese project management organization called Kanban, which is three columns. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Kanban, yeah. What do we need to work on? What are we going to work on? And what have we, or what are we working on? Or what have we successfully completed? And we prioritize, and I use that. I literally have created my own electronic health record system so that patients can log on to their portal and see these tools. So as their treatment evolves, as their prioritization changes, they're live with that. So it makes them a participant. Patients are with me because of the complexity of their illnesses typically for you know a pretty extended period of time. And my success rate's enormously high. I think I skew it. I tell them I'm skewing it by accepting them as a patient. There's an extraordinarily high likelihood that they're going to see vast improvement, if not right. cure. But that's only because... If you ask everybody in the front end if they have a condition that you can help or at least suspect it, it makes it more likely that, you know, you're going to get a great result. But I tend to get really good results with patients. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, I really wanted to get you on the call today to talk about a calculator that you put me in touch with about three years ago called the HOMA calculator. For those of you that don't know it, how would you describe the HOMA calculator? It's what a homeostatic way of being able to review fasting glucose, fasting insulin, and or C-peptide and get a real sense of what's happening in the pancreas. But before we kind of dive into that, we talk about our pandemic of COVID. What about our epidemic of blood sugar dysregulation and how many people are dying because of that? Obviously, I think that you're probably seeing a lot of patients with blood sugar dysregulation issues. Tell us a little bit about kind of what are your thoughts on why we're seeing such a big epidemic. I mean, I'm speaking to the choir here, but I'm always interested in kind of people's yeah. thoughts about that. So how we get to the point of being super dysfunctional. Can I share my screen? Because I think it's, it's... Yeah, go for it. I've put together for us all to enjoy some thoughts and illustrations. and Perfect, let's go for my it. I couldn't believe that I was up last night like 
playing with medical diagrams, but I really enjoy the process of sharing. And I hope you can see this. Okay. Yeah, we can. Yeah, absolutely. When I came out of school in 87, it was, you know, simple. You know, basically, I had only heard of high blood sugar. I really didn't even know much about the word dysglycemia. High blood sugar at that point had not even these two names, type 1 and type 2. At that point, we were still talking about insulin-dependent diabetic and non-insulin. IDDM and IDDM, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody fell in that category unless you hit the diagnostic criteria based right. upon those. And that I'm embarrassed to say the diagnostic criteria at that point was really high. You know, the bar was at 120. We didn't talk about anything about, you know, pre-diabetes. <laughs> you know, they hit 120 and then you're like, okay, is it, you know, eventually is it type 1 or type 2? And it turns out, you know, that as we change the classification of this and realize that, you know, 120 is already a significant glycemic decompensation occurring there. The mechanisms that regulate blood sugar are broken at that point. Not even struggling, they're really broken. And then you get to 99 and you realize, well, geez, if we just make that the cutoff, you know, we're going to catch a lot more people. And it's true, you know, the incidence of just the insulin resistance side of this has some targets, you know, depending on who you look at, at somewhere between 40 and 60% of Americans are or will have some form of prediabetic dysglycemic. And they're talking specifically on the insulin resistance side. Now, with a more advanced tool, I will tell you that that number approximates closer to 80% of Americans. Right. And what we understand now about insulin resistance and its association with inflammation, its own disease unto itself, and we understand now the relationship to a variety of dementias as well as autoimmune disorders, cardiovascular risks, it makes so much sense that we might see a lot more of this in the population than we had one time thought. And then I'm going to throw a whole bunch in today about, wow, we're missing the other half of this, mm-hmm. which is the reactive hypoglycemia side of things, which doesn't match at all what I learned about hypoglycemia, you know, which was as equally absurd on the other side, which is, you know, when somebody has a fasting blood sugar lower than six, back then it was 60 or 65, then we start getting concerned right now it's at 70. And I will tell you, without a good sensitive tool, you can't pick any of that up early enough. And those individuals suffering from sleep initiation, insomnia, mid-sleep waking insomnia, severe anxiety, panic attacks, delayed hunger or no hunger sensation, delayed or no sensation around thirst, jittery, angry, emotionally labile, you know, that whole sympathetic dominant limbic person, I will say 99% of the time have a blood sugar issue on this side of things. You know, they're on the work side of things where it's not being regulated. So it's vast. It is surprisingly rare, and I have a skewed population of patients, Dr. Weatherby, but it's so rare. Somebody in front of me that is really like, I'm kind of in awe. You know, when I see somebody and I've evaluated this and they have a normal blood sugar, it's rare. It's rare where we don't have some fine tuning to do. And more likely the case that we have a lot to do in that area. And that is very central to what's going on with them. So let's dive into some biomarkers. And also, I know that you've got some presentations here, so feel free to just present away. I mean, I love hearing you speak. I love hearing your intellect and how you think about things. I think that's so important for us to get these different perspectives. And so if there's some things that you want to kind of run with, feel free to do so. You, I have this screen to share. I hope you can see it, yes? Yes, I absolutely can. Right. Yeah. I'll start off, essentially, and let me know if it's helpful. I'll, I'll make this thing a little bit... Uh, 
But until we had the homeostatic model of assessment, we were looking at a diagnostic endpoint, really, right. which is the glucose level doing. Yeah. And I remember looking at this and trying to understand what glucose was really telling us. And it was simply telling us that all of the intricate mechanisms that back up the stabilization of blood sugar had broken in some way. Mm. And I got the notion that glucose wasn't the problem, that it was an effect and not a cause, that a lot of things had to get very bad and perform very badly in the body for glucose to be disrupted in some way. It put like a big light bulb mm -hmm. on for me. When you look and map out, and we're going to map out some of it, all of the regulatory mechanisms around fasting blood sugar, glucose, in order for that to vary, a lot's got to go south pretty quickly or slowly, but a lot has to be broken in order for that to vary. Mm -hmm. And the diabetologists at the Radcliffe Department of Medicine of Oxford kind of knew the same thing. Now, they were really hanging on to the type 1, type 2 side of things, mostly type 2. And since they came up with this algorithm, it's been published, the homeostatic model of assessment of insulin resistance has been published in over 500 different papers. There's no way to get a more accurate handle on what's going on with someone's blood sugar unless you do an insulin clamp. And I don't know about you, but I to do that. <laughs> so, you know, the thought of injecting someone with insulin and watching what their blood sugar does fascinates the heck out of me, but I think we'd have to have an IRB and a bunch of other things in play in order to Yeah, right. <laughs> Having a tool that with a simple, single blood sample, making sure that I'm testing two factors at the same time, that it can give me information that I didn't have before, which is what they call the percent B, which is the beta cell output. How much insulin is coming out of the pancreas? Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it, which is how sensitive are the receptors on the cells to that insulin? Now, I want to go up about... 50 gazillion thousand feet and say, you can apply this model to every bit of endocrinology because we spend an awful lot of time in functional endocrinology talking about the blood levels of steroid hormones, for example, mm -hmm. when the fact is there's very little attention being given to the receptor side of things. Right. Right. So this breaks open a veil. And I hope to see more and more tools in the steroid hormones that rival what I'm going to show you with the hormone insulin, but everything having to do with high and low blood sugar, what we think of as insulin resistance leading into diabetes, or we think of as reactive hypoglycemia leading into insulin resistance, which leads into diabetes. Regardless, all of it really comes down to the modulation of the hormone insulin. It has nothing to do with blood sugar. Blood sugar is the effect of that breaking down. Yeah. So this tool does not do anything with blood sugar, even though we're inputting the blood sugar as a value to have this understood what's going on. It is not telling us what's going on with blood sugar. It's telling us what's going on with insulin. And that is the key to fixing this. Mm -hmm. It's also the key to uncovering years or decades beforehand, or when someone has symptoms and we can't see it in their fasting blood sugar, why that's going on. So when I think about this, it brings me back to this like kind of like nuts and bolts basics. And I apologize for how pedantic this is, but it was helpful for me to draw some circles and squares and ovals last night and put this. No, this is so helpful. I love getting back to basics. Don't get yeah, me wrong. I think it, we have to. Because if you understand the basics of this tool, which is a very, it's actually a very basic tool. You'd have to think this is a miracle, the tool. 
because it tells us something we would never know before. We eat to produce glucose. Now you could say we eat to produce lipids and that's true. You know, we need those to produce steroids, to produce long-term energy, to be able to biotransform certain factors and to turn Big Macs into brain cells. But <laughs> the most part, we need glucose. Like cells live off of glucose. So digestion produces glucose in the bloodstream. But as you're aware, glucose is horrible at getting into the cells by design. Because if we think of our cells simply as a combustion engine, there needs to be three factors that are present. There needs to be fuel, there needs to be spark, and there needs to be oxygen. And in the same way that we would never go into a service station, stick the nozzle you know, of the tank into the carburetor or fuel injection system of our cars yeah. and pump away and expect the engine to even start, let alone run, right. there needs to be a way to carburate glucose in based on the amount of energy being produced and the amount of oxygen available. Now, energy production's mitochondrial function, let's assume that's working in the particular patients we're talking about today. We have good tools to measure that, by the way. And then oxygen's pretty easy. We've got incredible red blood cell function that we can look at ferritin levels, we can look at hemoglobins and hematocrits, and we can do some pretty cool oxygen studies with patients to get a sense, is there enough oxygen going to the cell? But glucose married with that oxygen with the miracle of the mitochondria doing this, those electrons dance on that tiny filament and wind up spitting out CO2 and water and ATP, and energy is ATP. This only works well if glucose is carbureted, and that has nothing to do with the amount of glucose that's in the bloodstream. Whether we carburate well or we don't is an endocrine function. It's an endocrine function based on pancreatic output and insulin receptor sensitivity. So how much is the pancreas proportionally putting out enough insulin to hit the insulin receptor and open up the glucose channel? And is this receptor sensitive and is that output sufficient? If the output matches the amount of glucose present and if the receptor can hear all of that output, it will open the channel, glucose goes in, bada bing, bada boom, person feels lots of energy. Food is not creating or fixing a symptom in these patients. So let's go back to that one. If you have a patient that food fixes a symptom or creates a symptom, something's wrong. It is your job to figure that out. But it's not supposed to do that. Food is not supposed to fix anything. And when it doesn't fix anything, and then the insulin output and the insulin receptors are working well, life is good. So it's a miracle, you know, because the body has lots of ways of fixing things. Glucose, when it rises too high, becomes a toxin, a horrible toxin in the body. So if for some reason this mechanism is all busted up somehow, the body says, well, I have to do something with the glucose. It's going to glycosylate. It's going to bind to a bunch of tissues and make everything hardened and the receptors harden and life's miserable. So it biotransforms glucose into triglycerides, yeah. which eventually get deposited into the liver, and we can see some weird things occur when that occurs. Also, if this is not efficient or is all bogged up, you will have glucose glycosylate, and one of the places we can easily measure it is the caramelization of glucose on the outside of the red blood cells, and bang, you can pick up hemoglobin A1C, which everybody says, oh, that's the sign of you know glucose level. It's the sign, as it elevates even slightly, that there is impaired glucose metabolism because insulin isn't working properly. It's yeah. either not outputting properly or not being received properly. 
So what if we could look here and see how much is coming out of the pancreas and look here and see how much sensitivity there is to insulin? And that's it. That's what the homeostatic model of insulin assessment or insulin resistance assessment does. Their percent B is the beta cell output on a scale of 1 to 100 plus. You can have more than the normal amount of insulin coming out, and you can have less. Same thing with insulin receptor sensitivity. They call it the percent S, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. How sensitive is this receptor? What do we want it to be? 100%. So then you talk about ranges. You know, I struggled <laughs> to learn yeah. about ranges during my time at Genova. It was one of the most important things to me as a clinician because reference ranges are what we use as clinicians to tell us do we need to action this or not. And I learned that they're completely arbitrary, which just it broke down a glass house for me completely because reference ranges are determined by statistical means, not clinical means for the most part. I will tell you from my clinical experience, but also from some of the papers relative to this, that both on the hypoglycemic and on the hyperglycemic side, that you're looking for a beta cell output that's no worse than about 20% on either side of perfect, which is 100% yeah. perfect, so 80 to 120. But I manage my patients between 90 and 110, mm -hmm. and they do vastly better. We have a celebration at 80. If they started out at 40% insulin output and we get to 80, wow, because their life is totally different. Same thing with insulin receptor sensitivity. You want to be at 100%. It's okay to be somewhere between 80 and 120 for this number, but I prefer between 90 and 110. Yeah. This activity is so interesting because we can literally determine an incredible range of issues, different patterns, reactive hypoglycemia, early insulin resistance, late insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, type 3C diabetes that nobody ever talks about, which is rampant, especially in a functional medicine population. We're going to talk about these a little bit today. We'll tease it out and figure out how to use the tool to get there. But we need to go through a little bit more mm -hmm. in our understanding of what's happening here. A little bit more is there's a parallel process going on inside the cell. Like the cell does not want to starve. Cellular starvation is the equivalent of cell death. It doesn't take long before function starts to drop significantly. Mitochondrial function stops. And as soon as you stop mitochondrial function, instead of just thinking about the cell living, think about the cell functioning. If it's a brain cell, it will not be a brain cell. Well, if it's a thyroid cell, if it's a gut cell, if it's a muscle cell, and you starve off glucose because you have poor insulin receptor sensitivity or poor beta cell output or some combination of these two, you're going to cause cellular destruction, cellular death, or cellular functional impairment. And it kind of goes in you know, that range of things. Mm -hmm. There's a backup mechanism to all of this, huge backup mechanism. And that involves something called LDH, lactate dehydrogenase. And you know, you got to go like way back into biochemistry that we all studied for for one day, you know, and yeah. then it went away. And I can't believe I spend my life now back in, in the biochemistry yeah. that I, you know, didn't enjoy that much back then because nobody told me how important it was. There's a backup mechanism that involves getting glucose into the Krebs cycle, into that cycle that produces ATP, CO2, and water which involves the conversion back and forth between pyruvate and lactate. All you need to know is this. The body has a lot of ways of keeping 
flow into the Krebs cycle, even when glucose is starved off. And one of the ways it does that is to regulate an offshoot pyruvate over to lactate. When glucose gets a little too high coming into the cell, it will activate LDH and push pyruvate into lactate and kind of like bleed off glucose. Conversely, when glucose is not sufficient to drive enough Krebs cycle activity, LDH will go down. Mm. And it's an incredibly valuable tool because regardless of reactive hypoglycemia or insulin resistance, when LDH starts dropping down, like this is a big problem. It's a huge problem. That means the cell is gone into panic mode. It has gone into the opposite of what it really wants to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we tie together this notion of pancreas produces insulin, insulin touches the receptor, the receptor opens up a glucose channel, glucose goes in, makes energy. If the glucose can't go in with enough energy, with enough flow, LDH will go down. And you will see triglycerides go up, hemoglobin A1C go up, and if triglycerides go up long enough, they're going to create a lot of you know, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. You're going to see NASH, and you know, you're going to start to see your liver enzymes climb. So I use the tool in a really interesting way. If it feels appropriate, I could go into that with you. Yeah, let's do it, yeah. If we start, and I think I would rather start with early insulin resistance, which is something that most of us miss. We just don't see it. Not because we don't suspect it. You know, we see a patient who has poor energy conversion. They eat and they fall asleep. They're starving for sugar right after they eat. Their hunger is really low in the morning, but it gets more and more as the day goes on. They might have interruptions of their sleep, mm-hmm. especially mid-sleep waking, and they tend to have a pendulous abdomen. They might be showing signs of a little bit of microalbuminuria show up in their analysis. They may show signs of some elevated liver enzymes. These things like classic walking wounded that we see in America. We might see a normal glucose in them still by the tools that we have. Their glucose might be 94, 95 rarely is in the 80s for these individuals. So if we say that a really healthy blood sugar level when you wake is 85, 75 to 85, then anybody at 95 has something unburnt. And realize that most of these individuals have fasted for eight to 12 hours, which means even eight to 12 hours after dinner, they haven't moved dinner into their cells yet. So that should tell us something's wrong. But assume that their glucose level by normal standards hasn't reached the 99 for us to label them as pre-diabetic. What tells us that they're in early insulin resistance? Well, look at the pattern. The beta cell output will be up and the insulin sensitivity will be down. It's kind of a no-brainer. When you have the development of insulin receptor insensitivity, resistance, the body's real smart. And it says, well, insulin isn't triggering the glucose to move into the cells, so what do I need to do? Make more of it. Put in more insulin. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to digress here and tell you that I never, 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 ever, 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 ever use insulin to input into this homeostatic model of assessment. You only need two factors. You need glucose and you need some indicator of insulin. They give us two options. I choose B. I choose the second option. You can put insulin in, right. but insulin varies over the course of the day like no man's business. It is all over the place. Over the course of an hour, 
It is all over the place. It is by design a labile hormone. It's you know reactive, blood sugar up, blood sugar down. It's just constantly moving. A better indicator of this is C-peptide. It's the only one I use with reliability. And the homeostatic model of assessment uses either insulin or C-peptide. So every time I mention insulin now, just replace it with the word C-peptide. Imagine C-peptide being the same to insulin as hemoglobin A1C is to glucose. It's a steadier state indicator mm. of insulin activity. In early insulin resistance, the insulin receptor sensitivity is going to go down. So insulin output, beta cell output is going to go up. And we probably have some degree of insulin resistance enough to see glucose go and not be changed at all because the body will shunt the glucose into triglycerides. So you'll see triglycerides, 100, 120, 150, 180, you'll see elevation, mild elevation of triglycerides. You might see hemoglobin A1C at 5.6 or 5.7. You'll see the bioconversion occur. Rarely will you already see a change in liver function because you haven't sustained triglycerides for that long. But you have elevated triglycerides, elevated beta cell function, low insulin sensitivity. You're going to hear me ignore this index, the HOMA IR index, because it really is based upon these two functions. It's the same number. It's just when the HOMA IR goes above one, we have insulin resistance. And when it goes below one, we have hyperinsulin sensitivity. It's not that helpful. I rarely use it with patients. Hmm. But we also will probably never see lactate dehydrogenase change at that point. Why? Because you haven't screwed this up bad enough. Yeah. You know, you haven't created, there's enough bleeding off going on. You have lower receptivity, higher output. Glucose is kind of being forced through these channels, but barely. Glucose might be up a little bit above 85, but not above 99. Triglycerides are raising, hemoglobin A1C is raising, and you don't have any problem at all. That's early. And I could never pick that up before. If I didn't have this tool, I could listen to symptoms, and symptoms lie all day long. People are ignorant of their symptoms. That's a really common pattern, is to look at early insulin resistance. Now, Late insulin resistance is a horse of another color because at that point, we already will see glucose going above 99. Why? Because the mechanism just has kind of failed. Mm. Like you can only push up this beta cell output enough before the pancreas. And I've seen beta cell outputs at 195, which means it's 95% more insulin output than the pancreas is designed to put out. And then I see insulin receptor sensitivity all the time in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But I will see glucose being essentially at 103, 110. Because what's happening, we see triglycerides up, we see hemoglobin A1C up, and then the liver starts to get messy. And then we start to see with that some degree of lactate dehydrogenase start to go down. Good? All right. Yeah. Then... If you want to really break things, you just keep keep pushing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you're going to wind up with a glucose eventually above 126. Yeah. Quiz question. Do you remember why 126 is the magic number, Dr. Weatherby? I don't. No. Please tell us. <laughs> a ridiculous answer. Are you ready? Because that is where medications such as glucophage, glucophage and metformin right. and all those guys. That's where 
when instituted at their lowest testable dose, will not induce reactive hypoglycemia. They won't drive people too low. At 126. It has nothing to do with health. Right. It's not a clinical... Everything to do with pharmaceuticals. It's kind of like saying just the most ridiculous thing. It's like saying, you know, you need to drink five glasses of milk a day. Why? Is it healthy? No. But it will spoil. The amount of milk I'm buying will spoil. You don't <laughs> a day. And like, well, that doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. That's what this is. So you will get to glucose at 126, 135, 156. Triglycerides will be up. At that point, it gets confusing because beta cell output is usually starting to decline at that point mm. because the pancreas is wearing out. Start wearing out, yeah. That's not a good sign. And you will still see just incredible amounts of insulin sensitivity. But this is the confusing thing for a lot of people like, oh, I have a low beta cell output and I have a low sensitivity. I don't even understand what that is. That bad. 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 It is just an endpoint, right, of a pathophysiologic process that is not being interrupted in any way. And you will see lactate dehydrogenase be a real mess at that point. It'll be down at 100. Mm. Why? Because the cell is like, oh my gosh, I'm not getting glucose in. All of that glucose is going where? It's going into triglycerides. Hemoglobin A1C at that point is seven, seven and a half. You start to see ALT, ASTs at 60s and 70s. And you realize you've got a person, you know, with steatohepatitis and, you know, early fatty liver disease. And it's so interesting that we have become so desensitized in the United States around blood sugar problems that when I tell people that they are not only pre-diabetic, but these mechanisms have broken down, they all say like really casual things like, oh, yeah, I thought that pre-diabetic or diabetic. And now we also gotten into the point where we started to have deposition of fat in your liver, fatty liver. We call that right before cirrhosis. And that's when a big letter happens. Nobody wants, you know, to be the guy or gal that needs a liver transplant. As a quick aside, why do you think that is? Is it because this isn't that symptomatic that they're not necessarily experiencing life-changing symptoms? They can still be functional as far as they want to be. These people are probably not running marathons. They're probably not exercising. They don't really care whether they can walk up the stairs or not. Is it that type of insensitivity? They care a lot more that other organs are starting to get involved. Right. So somehow in our society, we've become a little desensitized to glucose-related issues. Well, it's because it's just everywhere. So, well, it's just part of being American. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I want to take you over to a really fascinating area that I was kind of ignorant until starting to do some of this testing, which was reactive hypoglycemia. Because, you know, what we're talking about in reactive hypoglycemia is a horse of a whole nother color, but it will make sense based on this. There are individuals for whom they really have the opposite, they've developed just an opposite pattern due to their epigenetics, due to their mm. constitutional nature and the way that they've led their life they tend to have elevated insulin receptor sensitivity, the opposite of what insulin resistance. So just flip it in your head. That's the starting place. Now that often can be triggered by anorexia and bulimia. Let me even take the extreme of that out, eating disorder, hmm. which you can assume that you have 30 to 40% of females beneath the age of 18 having some degree of eating disorder. We won't call it anorexia at that point, but they are using body image and modulating diet and exercise as a tool to adjust that. 
that creates elevated insulin receptor sensitivity. Hyperadrenalism causes this, HPA axis issues. The other thing I notice causing this a lot is insufficiency of pancreatic and stomach digestion of fats and proteins. Those are your long-lasting fuel sources. So if you don't break your fats down and your proteins down, you will not have really a steady glucose levels. And if you don't have a steady glucose level, the body's natural adaptation response is to just increase your insulin receptor sensitivity. Mm -hmm. If you were whispering to me, Dr. Weatherby, and I really wanted to hear what you had to say because my life depended upon it, I would keep leaning in. I would keep hearing closer what I needed to hear. That's all the cell is doing by turning up its sensitivity. Interesting. If not getting steady glucose, it will increase that sensitivity. However, if the pancreas blasted out a normal amount of insulin, a person would go into shock. If you have a high sensitivity and you finally get a blast of normal insulin, you're just going to literally create a blood sugar that just goes down to nothing. Everything will stop. So what we see in the process of reactive hypoglycemia is an elevation of the sensitivity, the opposite of insulin resistance. And you see a suppression of the beta cell. So glucose might be normal. I rarely see it low. It mm. surprises me. When somebody's in front of me and their blood glucose is at 60 or 65, I'm like, God, that is really unusual. I mean, it's bad, mm. but it's really unusual because the brain doesn't want to go to sleep. It has a lot of mechanisms. There's this whole gluconeogenesis that occurs. The brain freaks out, sends a signal to the adrenals. We have a release of cortisol. Cortisol and the other catecholamines are going to stimulate a dump of glycogen from the liver, gluconeogenesis and glycolysis into the bloodstream. And you know, then the person's on a speedball, basically, of cortisol, catecholamines, and molasses for the next three hours, right? Right. And they will have really low lactate dehydrogenase, 90, 95, mm. freakishly low levels. This is where a lot of your autoimmune people are. Interesting. I mean, generally, what cancer people are because insulin is an anabolic hormone. Mm -hmm. And by the way, LDH, if you dig into it at all, and if I've got you at all interested based on listening to this, look at the other side of LDH. When it goes up, it's a really excellent tumor marker. It doesn't yeah. tell you what it is or where it is. It's a really good tumor marker yeah. because tumors use cellular fuel in a really unusual way. They do it by anaerobic glycolysis and they want to, you know, starve off a lot of things. So the one pattern that is still left here is to talk about type 3C. Type 3C diabetes is basically reactive hypoglycemia with also pancreatic breakdown of the necessary enzymes together. So what you will see in them is the exact same pattern, but the pancreas, the exocrine and the endocrine pancreas are both failing. So just think of type 3C diabetes as endocrine, exocrine, total pancreatic failure. So you're not getting enough insulin out. Mm -hmm. So now it's like wag the dog, right? The pathophysiologic mechanism I described for reactive hypoglycemia, now the opposite is occurring. The initiator is pancreatic problems. You're not getting enough insulin out. Therefore, you have to turn up the dial to listen more. So it's, it's not, not a regulatory a, issue, it's an actual cellular issue on some level. Cellular issue. They are head first toward type 1 diabetes, insulin-dependent diabetes. And this is where you start to see your 
you know, adult onset, you know, autoimmune diabetes. Mm -hmm. And what you will see concomitantly with this is elevation of two markers that you taught me about. We run the heck out of these things, yeah. which is urinary uric acid and urinary calcium oxalate as a pretty good indicator of whether someone is fully breaking down fats and proteins. And when we see a HOMA IR that is less than one, much less than one, when you see insulin sensitivity decreased, increased, and insulin output increased, and you see the presence of these two markers, they've got type 3 C diabetes, which nobody's picking up. You'll be the first person to ever even talk to them about this. And when they go and talk to their primary care about it, their primary care physician is going to go look. It doesn't hit the type 1, type 2 buttons in their database. But when we look at the range, and there's a lot more variation we could talk about, mm -hmm. these are the five basic subsets. There are variations under each of these, but these are the five subsets. I wouldn't know how to pick these up unless I had this homeostatic model of insulin assessment. I wouldn't be able to do it. Wow. And the vast majority, by the way, of these papers are all published on the insulin resistance side. There's still very little published data about the side of reactive hypoglycemia, but it's very real. It's very critical. It's very wow. critical. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, there's so many amazing clinical insights that you just shared with us. So really, really appreciate that. Do we have like a few seconds to talk about what do you do about this? I mean, obviously, we could fill a whole <laughs> lecture on that. <laughs> I think on the insulin resistance side of things, I take a several-pronged approach. Some of it seems obvious. Mostly patients have no idea about how the glycemic index of the foods that they're consuming is overwhelming this mechanism. So even though it, it probably was a bad lifestyle layered on top of some genes, you need some bad genes to get into type 2 diabetes to get into insulin resistance. Certainly having these big glycemic loads overwhelm a system that's kind of not, not functioning very well is bad. So we'll get them on a low glycemic diet. They do really well with intermittent fasting. Some of them with the most severe cases do really well with the creation of ketosis for a while. They do super well. No, only aerobic size, 30 seconds up. Why not just have them feed off first to where they think they're gonna die, this mechanism like a level 9, 10 kind of burst. Now, they can't start with the insulins that are inflamed. will be so conditioned that they don't have the anti-inflammatory. Beat them over the head with an We start them slow with one burst that's a little bit higher than what they can handle, but we ramp them really slowly. Five really strong, like eye-popping bursts. Oh, so 30 seconds on, 90 seconds of not rest. Just but yeah, get the heart rate down. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no way to fix this range of tools, natural there's compounds that can be used. And, you know, that, you know, head to head with metformin, they, they can be really powerful. You take even the most simple elements like, you know, GTF chromium, which that's the only thing I knew about coming out of school. Yeah, right. I come back to using a ton of it because it really, yeah. it really, really helps. You know, IV gourd is an amazing substitute to help, you know, stimulate this. And I... You know, have so worked out of you know, internal formulary sort of that you know helps me modulate. As long as I don't have SIBO, I will use a ton of dietary fiber, the soluble fiber, mm -hmm. with them also, in order to kind of blunt the blood sugar response from that perspective. You know, success is really generally easy with this. Mm -hmm. Generally easy if you take a you know multiple pronged approach this way. 
on, oh, and one more thing is contrast showers work extraordinarily well. Not certain of the mechanism. I think Wim Hof is a genius. Like, I don't even know if he knows why everything he says works with regard to the use of cold. I have people do contrast showers to accomplish this. Like cryotherapy is really powerful at creating a normalization of insulin response. So we use that. On the reactive hypoglycemia side, it's really hard. Uh, I have to work concomitantly with the HPA axis. I have to work significantly with the influence of getting regular feeding in and reestablishing normal hunger signals. These are people that have learned not to be hungry. They've learned that their body weight of being really kind of close to very underweight is normal for them. And then when you say, look, I need you to eat every 90 to 120 minutes, they just look at me like I'm absolutely nuts. Because they just don't have the desire to eat. They not only don't have the desire, they say they're nauseous. They're nauseous because they clearly are in this terrible hypoglycemic place. They're living off of glycolysis. I have to work and promise them that their normal signaling mechanism will come back. They're terribly dehydrated because something happens in the mesencephalon and closer probably to the brainstem that as you inhibit the hunger mechanism, you're inhibiting also those epicenters that control thirst. So they're dehydrated, they're wiry, they're so excitable from an emotional point of view. This is a real big challenge. You know, it's a super big challenge as a clinician. But regular eating, we have to typically attenuate their exercise. Those individuals, they are earning way more than they're putting in. And getting somebody who's used to being at the gym on the elliptical for an hour a day, which is their own kind of weight management program to be anorexic, and to teach them how to eat is a really challenging thing, a challenging thing for us to do. There are certain elements that will also increase pancreatic output. They're called secretagogs. You know, real simple one is something as easy as licorice will be a secretagog. To some degree, IV board does that also. But there's a slew of natural compounds that are secretagogs and tend to increase pancreatic output. Low-level laser therapy on the pancreas is remarkable for those people that are both uh, reactive hypoglycemic and also those that have type 3C diabetes because the pancreas is asleep. Those with type 3C diabetes, there is some organism at play. So we go deep dive, deep stool genetic analysis and virology. You know, we've got Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, HHV6, which is really common for pancreatic tissues, those Epstein-Barr as well as any of the gut bacteria can translocate through the duct into the pancreas and just destroy the tissue. So anytime you have the potential for, you know, autoimmune or TH1 driven activity in an organ, it's going to destroy the organ. And in the same way that Hashimoto's destroys the function of the thyroid gland, organisms and then the reactive autoimmunity and confusion of the immune system can start to attack pancreatic tissue. So I'm not great at this. I'm good at it. You know, I'm, I'm getting better at it every day. It's a, it hurt. it's a work in progress to learn how to manipulate these things. But it just starts with the awakening of having a tool. Because the great thing about a tool is you don't have to be good at treatment. You just have to be sincere about wanting to help somebody. And then the tool will tell you closer or further away. And I work with my patients all the time with this notion that I don't know everything. I know a lot. But not everything. And the one thing I don't know yet with them as we get started is them. I can tell you about studies, I tell them, but I only care about one study right now, which is the end value of one of them. 
that they're a snowflake and I don't know them yet. I know a lot more than most doctors know about them. I tell them after the test time, but I don't know them. And I ask them to celebrate smart failures. You know, medicine does not celebrate failure. You know, it covers it up. And I tell them that and share that I have learned so much more about my patient's physiology by seeing outliers and what doesn't work with them than what does work. And when I learn something, it's going to be look like a failure. Like, oh, this didn't go in the right direction, but it tells us something about their physiology. And then we will use something else or something else or pick a different approach until we get the marker to change. So rest assured to everyone listening that you don't have to be great at knowing what to do. You can investigate what natural compounds, what lifestyle changes, what dietary changes cause increased insulin sensitivity or which cause greater pancreatic output. But it doesn't matter because you have a tool that tells you if what you're doing is closer or further away. I'm sure somebody would say, well, biofeedback would be great for this. A hundred percent, yes. Finish mm. needs some degree of, you know, the hyperbolic nature of someone's neurology, and you're going to tone down cortisol, which is going to have this kind of loop-like effect into the system. So anything can affect this. Now you have a tool that tells you what to do. And to me, this was just like a blew my brain out of my head, you know, to realize when I started using it how valuable it was. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. Thanks for sharing your insights. And are there any trainings that you teaching at all or writing? Or... I just did this one. Maybe <laughs> can we get you back to teach for us? <laughs> I would be happy to. We can talk and I'd be happy to co-teach or, or provide some content for those of you listening. And I'm just grateful for what everybody is doing. You know, this is real important work. This yeah. is being able to detect something that they can't, get the information. Literally, they can't from anybody else. They could go to the most esteemed institution in the world. They will not get this approach. They won't. It just doesn't happen. They can go to an endocrinologist, a diabetologist, not going to happen. And they certainly aren't going to get it from their primary care doc. And they probably won't get it from most functional medicine practitioners because there are a variety of evolutionary models in functional medicine. And this is on the forefront. This is not back-end stuff. And what I learned, you know, 20 years ago, what I learned 10 years ago doesn't apply anymore. Some of it is just so antiquated, it doesn't apply anymore. And yet it's still being taught in the core curriculum of some training programs. So stay on the edge. That's, that's Stay on the edge. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Ackman. Appreciate well, it very, very much. Thanks, everybody, for your attention. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for watching, tuning in. I'm Dr. Brad Rackman from the Rackman Clinic in North Carolina. Thank you so much, Brad. Appreciate thanks. it. Well, that's it for our presentation today. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to Optimal, the podcast. Again, my name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. If you're interested in subscribing to the podcast, we are on Apple, Google, and Spotify. So do please go over and subscribe. If you want to learn more about what we do at Optimal DX, want to come over and watch a video of this presentation, read the transcript, do come on over to OptimalDX.com forward slash blog. And we have a ton of great content and a ton of resources for you. So again, Dr. Dick and Weatherby from Optimal DX, thanking you so much for tuning in today. And we look forward to sharing more great information on Optimal, the podcast. All right, take care. Bye-bye.